energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons. It's been three months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In that time, we've seen shockwaves spread across the globe, driving up energy prices, impacting world markets, and causing one of the biggest humanitarian crises in recent history. On the podcast today, I'm joined by an expert panel of guests to discuss how governments, investors, and companies must respond in order to detach from Russian oil and gas and adapt to new energy trade flows. Joining me is Massimo Diordardo from Wood Mackenzie. Massimo, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Liz. Great to be here. One of our main focuses for discussion today is this month's Horizon piece, in which we talk about the opportunity for countries to invest in the new LNG supply. Before we meet our other guests, can you give us a sentence or two on why this is a huge opportunity? So a very simple line here, right? Unlike oil or, or for example, coal that can be shipped around because they're traded mainly through ships. If you take out Russian gas from Europe, you need to substitute that supply somehow. So new investment are required. And LNG is the most material and effective way to try and, and, uh, and, and, and meet that gap. But unfortunately, it still takes time to develop LNG, right? So, so that gap will take time to, to be filled. Also joining me is Wood McKenzie's Vice President of Oils Research, Anne-Louise Hiddle. And Louise, welcome to your first Horizons podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here, Liz. Thank you. It is great to have you. Can you tell us a little about what you do and what you would say is the key message here in regards to the changing commodities landscape post-Ukraine war? Thanks, Liz. At Woodmac, I am guiding and leading our oil market service. So we do short-term market forecast, supply, demand, price, and long-term supply, demand, price out to 2050. So a lot of the issues that have been highlighted uh, in the insight and thrown up by the Russia-Ukraine crisis have direct implications for our long-term view. And that's where I can point to the potential for a oil supply gap to develop by 2030 because of downward effect on Russia's supply from these sanctions. And whether or not that supply gap can be filled is going to depend potentially on Where's demand and the availability of upstream investment? And finally, I'm very pleased to welcome Derek Brower, U.S. Energy Editor at the Financial Times. Derek, I have to confess, I am a fan. Derek, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, by the time we release this episode, you'll be reporting from Ukraine. Can you tell us about your plan for your time there? I will be. I, I'm a Russian speaker, where well, I did a PhD in Russian literature for my sins. So, the FT was looking around for people who speak Russian and have been in conflict zones. So I put my hand up and now I find myself on my way to, to Ukraine. I'll be covering the conflict there. I'll be off the energy beat for a couple of weeks, uh, reporting on what's happening from Kiev and Kharkiv or wherever else I, I managed to get to. So that's my job for the next couple of weeks. I feel like there's a fascinating story about a PhD in Russian literature to becoming an energy expert. And if we ever overlap in person, I would love to buy you a drink and hear about it. Listeners, you're invited to join us too. <laughs> I can tell you lots about Dostoevsky's views on the oil market. <laughs> so with that, let's go ahead and jump right in. The war in Ukraine is transforming energy and commodity markets. Oil prices are above $100 a barrel and diesel has been at record premiums to crude. 
Now, let's assume a pessimistic outlook and that the war drags on for years. Europe bans Russia oil by the end of the year. What do we think that's going to do to global markets? Now, Derek, I'm going to call on you first. What do you think? I think it's a pretty big shock that the world is not quite uh, prepared for yet. I've got to say, I mean, Russia is such a huge uh, oil producer, such a huge exporter of refined products in particular. And if there's a successful embargo, and I think successful is a key term here, if there's a successful embargo of Russian oil and crude products, petroleum products from the market, then there isn't really a way to replace all that very easily, short of um, quite significant demand destruction. And when we talk about significant demand destruction, we're talking about recession, basically. And that's just because the volumes coming out of Russia are so great. I said successful is important in terms of how we look at this embargo as, as a term, because it's possible that instead of a huge dislocation, or maybe dislocation is the right word, actually, instead of a huge um, stoppage in Russian supplies, there's a reallocation, if you like, or a shift in, in where Russian oil ends up. We're already seeing that India is very willing to buy discounted Russian oil that doesn't have a home in Northwest Europe, for example. China, it looks like, is about to do the same. If China and India are willing to take all that crude, all those petroleum products, if Russia can find a way to get them there um, without worries about insurance on its ships and so on, then the adjustment over time could be accommodated by the global market. But in the meantime, look, you cannot take one of the top three oil producers in the world out of the market or try to disrupt its trade flows and without an impact on prices, a very significant one. I think we could be looking at a crisis in the short term, and by short term, I mean in the next year or so, akin to that in the 1970s. Yep, that's definitely a pessimistic outlook. <laughs> uh, and Luis Hermosimo, any thoughts from your end? As a pessimistic outlook, I would agree. I would just raise a couple points. First, on a little bit more of an optimistic point, which is that to a degree, because Europe, a lot of European companies, U.S. already has a ban in place, but a lot of European companies are already self-sanctioning and avoiding Russian crude. To a degree, we are starting to see the adjustment now. Um, as Derek mentioned, you know, crude from the Northwest Europe is already going to India. Uh, it's going to start to go to China. And it's finding homes. We monitor Russian crude oil exports weekly. And we're seeing that the volumes have remained steady despite the self-sanctioning. So there is a slightly more optimistic outcome, potentially. But the caveats that Derek mentioned in terms of potentially being quite severe, I certainly wouldn't rule out. I think, though, that the system's already adjusting to a degree. Uh, now, here on the more pessimistic side, I'm going to turn to refined products, which is that it's already extremely short, distillate in particular. And the very product that the ban from the EU is, is targeting, in addition to crude, is distillate exports from Russia going into Northwest Europe. And that's where I see potential further tightness. Now, some new refineries, new refining capacity is starting up over the next few months, uh, next three quarters or so, about 2.5 million barrels a day. So that's going to help on the refining side. But you know, adding in these diesel exports, um, the diesel export ban for Russia is not going to help. That is for sure. It's just going to continue that tightness that we're seeing even right now ahead of it. Yeah, I think there's, I agree with Anne Louise about that. And I think there's almost a second, there's almost a second element that we haven't, haven't discussed, which is what happens in the Russian upstream. And there, the, the impacts are not immediate. They're much longer term. If 
there isn't the kind of investment that Russia needs in the upstream coming from you know, Western companies, if there isn't oil field services and so on, if they don't find ways of domestically developing their own capacities in that sense, then Russia's story as a as a one of the growth engines of global supply, as it has been since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia's story is one of the most reliable um, producers of oil and its key role in the OPEP plus agreement. All of that starts to be affected, at least on the fringes, because Russia doesn't have I mean, if and and also the other thing to bear in mind is that if Russia is somehow constrained, if, for example, we go beyond the kind of embargo that's being talked about right now into secondary sanctions and so on, and that's a completely different kettle of fish because as soon as you apply secondary sanctions and you stop oil from leaving, even just for a few months, it backs up supply within Russia, which doesn't have a huge amount of storage and causes um, the shutdowns of, of fields, essentially, because they don't have anywhere to put the crude I mean, that's the kind of Armageddon scenario that I think the International Energy Agency has gamed out and led them to predict a drop in Russian production of 3 million barrels a day, like basically a third. Um, those are huge numbers, but they haven't happened yet. And that's because, as Anne-Louise says, the market has, the oil market, let's remember, is fungible, is very good at adjusting things. The oil market has accommodated um, so far the uh, embargo efforts made by the US and some European countries. Those are both really great points. So thinking on to the longer term, in the horizons that came out, we talk about the biggest risk to long-term Russian oil production is the loss of access to Western partners, technology services that could lead to up to 2 million barrels a day of supply being lost by 2030. How could that supply be made up for? Are we looking at OPEC, the U.S.? And Louise, curious to hear some thoughts from your side first. Okay, so I just want to clarify, um, because it sounds you know, supply lost. What it means is that pre-war, we actually showed Russia's production going up, its oil production going up all the way to 2030. And what we're trying to say here is that we actually had to revise that outlook downward by 2 million barrels a day. So in effect, it's lost, 2 million barrels a day. Does that make sense? Yeah. What, what percentage is that? Just to give the listeners a sense, is that a significant impact? Sure. Russia right now is producing about 10 million barrels a day, so it's quite significant. It's about 20%. Wow, it is. Um, and that's just, that's crude and condensates. That's, that's not including NGLs. Um, I mean, there's a little uncertainty in how much it's producing. And before the war broke out, it was about 10.8. I don't know if you disagree with that, Derek, but it was on its way to 11. And now it's kind of moved down to about 10.4. The point is that for all the reasons that you stated, Liz, we think that that supply is at risk. And a very concrete example that we put into our analysis is that we assumed that the Vostok project, oil project, would be delayed by five years. And it's an enormous, complicated, high-technology project in the Arctic region that was going to bring on about 2 million barrels a day by the end of the decade. And so we delayed that um, in our outlook. That where we, how, That's how we got to that number. It's one of the factors. Other factors were exactly what Derek mentioned, you know, in terms of, you know, all the different factors in, in terms of the ability to drill, the ability to do maintenance, the ability to um, get the oil out, having it back up, those kind of factors. So that's how we got to that number. We, we kind of did a look at this and we said, all right, that's a lot of oil. Um, unless we lose that on the demand side, we could be in trouble here. So just assuming demand is the same as in our base case forecast, we saw it being made up. Well, a little reluctantly from the U.S. Now, in the U.S., uh, we had to look at lower 48 because that's the most flexible in terms of reacting to price. But we all know now um, that it's been very sluggish in its response this year. 
we're only forecasting a 500 KBD year-on-year increase from the U.S. low of 48 this year, despite prices of $120 a barrel, as high as that. So we modeled prices at flat real $100 a barrel. And by 2027, we in fact did get an extra 1.4 million barrels a day from the U.S. lower 48. But think about that price, $100 flat real. That's not even nominal. So that kind of price did spur some extra production from the U.S. We also know the Saudis are bringing on some extra capacity. They're aiming for 2027 to bring on about 1.3 million barrels a day. Um, that could be accelerated uh, and could make, come in and start to meet, meet some of that gap from Russia. And then you can look at Venezuela, sanctions getting lifted against Venezuela or Iran. Those are possibilities, as well as just higher overall investment because of the industry being worried about filling that gap. So that would be a good place to start before I hand over to Derek to see if you have any other additional thoughts on that. It's really interesting because the oil market First of all, this assumes that we still need all that oil by then. Yeah, it's a big assumption. <laughs> but at the moment, the world isn't showing the kind of um, thirst for change and, and decarbonization that maybe we thought it might a couple of years ago. So let's assume that oil is needed. Uh, the oil market has been, there's a whole string of countries that have gone through what Russia may be about to go through, and the oil market has still coped over the long term. Iran produced way more oil than it produces now in the 1970s, and then the Iranian Revolution happened, and its output plummeted, and its output is plummeted again in recent years. So uh, Libya, um, before Gaddafi took over, was producing much more, and then Gaddafi took over, and now again Libya is going through its own crises, and oil production is down. Venezuela, you know, you look around these OPEC countries, and many of them have gone through this experience. So it wouldn't be the first time that a major oil producer has been decimated, if you like, and the oil market has always managed to find a way to to backfill. So it's possible that it could do it again. I'm just very skeptical now, for the first time in my life, at the flexibility on the supply side. I've covered the sector for a long time, and I just do not see the flexibility that the oil industry used to have, partly because the investment appetite in the upstream has waned for many reasons that are slightly tangential to what we're talking about. Um, second, because uh, there are just now these this extra factor of supply chain obstacles that we never really expected. And the reasons for that are, 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 again, kind of a different podcast. But there just seems to be so many headwinds in the face of the oil industry on the supply side right now that I'm very, uh, you know, I feel like the oil industry has it all to prove now that it could make up the kind of losses that Anne-Louise is describing that could come from, from Russia. And when we look at the U.S., the U.S. is so intriguing to me. It's what I cover mostly these days for the FT. But I'm just amazed. Every time I speak to a chief executive about uh, the oil price and whether they're finally going to start drilling more wells, they say no. They say, no, we can't because Wall Street will, will punish us. No, we can't because my compensation package these days is about dividends, not about more production. No, we can't because even if we wanted to drill, we can't get our hands on the rigs now. Uh, we can't get our hands on the sand or whatever it is. They all have some reason why they don't want to drill. And it's possible that they get through an entire upcycle in the oil price at the moment without really going back to the kind of enthusiasm for drilling that we saw between, you know, at various periods over the past 10 years. Now, and that changes too between who you're talking about, because the independents are the ones that are under the most severe uh, investor pressure to yes. just simply not grow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's really, their their stock price will go down if they have more 
oil production growth than they had previously said. Imagine that. Whereas the private operators who aren't subject to that kind of pressure, including ESG pressure, uh, they have been able to really grow. It's just that their share of U.S. lower 48 production is low. It's not as nearly as large as the independents. And the majors have been investing a lot. But overall, as Derek said, the overlay to this issue is the lack of, of um, rigs, uh, labor, trucking, you know, just the whole overall supply chain constraint that the industry faces. Yeah, this is fascinating. It reminds me of the quote from Jurassic Park, nature finds a way, except with energy, it finds a way, except when there's all these external complicating and competing factors that we have put constraints in and we've set up in this post-COVID environment so that it may or may not find a way. All right. I want to shift gears somewhat. Massimo, you have been entirely too quiet. I, I want to bring you into this. I have a question and want to get your two cents on this. The EU imported 140 BCM in 2021, or 35% of the market. Russian imports now have reduced substantially this year, and now we're seeing the Nord Stream running at just 40% of its capacity. How bad is this situation for Europe, particularly as we're thinking about winter coming up? Yeah, thankfully, it's, it's, it's actually pretty bad, right? Um, I mean, Europe was already uh, in a pretty uh, difficult situation throughout, you know, throughout the summer, where you know, Russian flows had continued to come down. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of LNG coming into the market, and that has helped uh, you know, get storage level to a decent level, actually to a very healthy level. But now the situation with you know, flows to Nord Stream coming down to only about 40%, really runs the risk of Europe getting to the winter with very little gas in storage. So some calculations that we have done, if, if, store, if, if Nord Stream supply was going to remain at the level that it is at the moment, is that actually Europe could get at the beginning of the winter with only about 70% of gas in storage. And that's an extremely low numbers to get through the winter if those Russian levels remain at that very low level. And if actually Russian gas was going to stop altogether, which is something that you know some are um, fearing it could happen, uh, you know eventually storage level could go as low as fifty percent for the for the beginning of the winter. So, so this poses you know Europe in a, in a in a very difficult situation to get through the winter, and you're starting to see uh, you know some governments starting to take actions to try and compensate for this supply loss, but unfortunately. Uh, you know, if, if, if Russian gas does stop altogether, uh, we fear that, uh, you know, these compensation measures that these governments are putting in place are, are probably not going to be enough, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, get storage to a little level and to get, you know, through the winter without, uh, without the risk of, of demand curtailments. So it's a very fluid situation. And again, the risk of demand curtailments through the winter is extremely high. Somewhat pessimistic, yet seems like you've done your research there and also seems somewhat realistic. Connecting the back to our earlier conversation, if Russian exports stop, how are Europe and the global market going to find a new balance overall in terms of gas? Well, I mean, I think, I think connected to what we were saying before, the market eventually always finds a balance, right? I mean, um, you know, we've seen how, uh, how critical the situation has been over the last few months. And, and the cost of that balance has been, uh, you know, record gas prices, right? I mean, I, th I think it's always, uh, you know, good to remember just how high gas prices are, right? At the moment, they are trading at $35 per MBTU. 
that's something in the range of 200 to $250 per barrel in terms of oil. So it's extremely high prices um, for, you know, by any type, type of comparison. But, but, but I think you know, if, if you look back at what has happened you know, to the winter, we, we've seen level of demand destructions in Europe on one side and level of LNG imports on the other side. That to some extent, only three or four, only you know, back in December, would have been quite uh, difficult to imagine, uh, you know, to be sustained to this level. And you know, and eventually, you know, if the market, if if Russian supply does stop, Europe is going to go through a very difficult period. But 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 again, eventually, uh, and the global gas market as well is going to go through a very different, difficult period. It's already going indeed through a very difficult period. But eventually, uh, you know, the, the market will find the balance. But the big difference is time frames, right? So, so you know, if you look at how the market is going to be structured over the next few years, there's going to be a period where, you know, because of the investment decisions that are going to be made now and to some extent that have been made in the past, we'll see a lot of supply coming into the market. And that is probably going to happen, uh, you know, post-2025, certainly, you know, starting from 2026. So beyond that period, you know, there is scope for the market to balance with a lot of supply. Right, I think you know the critical period is going to be for the market for how we get to that period where more supply is going to come. You know, the less Russian gas is going to be available, the more competition is going to be in the market. The higher the prices will be, and the higher the risk of demand uh, curtailments that will be in Europe, but to some extent also in Asia. So, it's going to be critical to understand you know how how, how the market is going to balance. Again, eventually it's going to be it's, it's going to balance, uh, you know, but at what prices and at what cost for demand. It's the big question. Yeah, I think there's um, an, another element here that that's really fascinating on the supply side. Uh, a bit like what we were discussing about with oil in the U.S. is, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the the extra supply that Massimo was talking about is coming from the U.S. I think, or expected to come from the U.S. Um, Qatar obviously as well. But the problem for the U.S. is that if you're an investor, you've heard relentless messaging from from Europe. Or if you're a developer of a plant, you've heard relentless messaging from Europe about uh, Europe trying to transition away from natural gas, maybe excluding natural gas from its tax, green taxonomy and so on. And if you're a utility you've in, who would buy that natural gas in Europe, you've had the same, same message. And these plants won't be built unless there is the belief that this natural gas will be used for the, the long term under these take or pay contracts. It could be quite costly. Or unless there's some other clever mechanism to guarantee that kind of demand. The EU and, and the Biden administration tried to square that circle by um, off signing this deal where the EU would guarantee 50 billion cubic meters a year of extra gas demand, at least till 2030, they said. But for many buyers of LNG or developers, that's actually quite a short time frame. And so I think, um, I mean, I'm, I totally agree with Massimo that the market will figure this out. But I think there's still this hurdle that they have to get over where people have faith that if they're going to build LNG plants, people are still going to be using LNG at the same you know, pace and, and rate in yeah. 25 years. Look, I, think, I think that's a great point. I think that's the challenge that on one side, LNG suppliers are facing to develop those, you know, those, 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 those projects. And on the other side, buyers and, and European buyers in particular are facing. And I think it goes back to, to what you're saying, right? It's the very mixed message that, uh, you know, the EU is, is, is providing. On one side is, is asking buyers to go and, and, and commit for, you know, and, and buy and procure new, 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 new supply. Uh, and on the other side, it's, it's saying, uh, you know, it wants to, uh, you know, to, to, to try and reduce exposure to gas as much as possible. 
so the analysis that we've done suggests that if Europe is successful in uh, delivering the, the policy framework that is pledged in the Repower EU uh, last month, effectively gas demand in Europe could go, and in the EU in particular, could go from the 400 BCM uh, that it uh, consumed last year in 2021 to as low as 255, 260 BCM in 2030. And that's a lot more than what Russia, uh, or, or indeed it's exactly the same amount actually that Russia exported last year. And certainly it's a lot, it's a lot more than what Russia is going to import this year. So, so the reality is that, uh, you know, if, you know, again, if, 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 if that demand reduction does materialize, uh, and there's a big if here, because we all know that those, uh, you know, pledges are extremely ambitions, ambitious, but if that was going to materialize, then, uh, you know, the longevity, if you want, of this, very strong LNG demand that is emerging from, from the EU, you know, might at some point start to reduce. So some of the analysis that we've done is that is actually if, if that, uh, you know, if that demand does materialize, eventually LNG demand will continue to grow over the next few years in Europe. But then as soon as 2025 and 26, might actually start, you know, start to decline. The, the point that you're raising, I think, you know, I think if you look at the contracting momentum that you see at the moment in the US, I mean, only yesterday, right, there have been as much as 10 BCM of deals announced between Chevron, Ineos, and ENBW, right? So the momentum behind new developments in the US is just enormous. I mean, U US is going in override, as we've said in, in an inside published just today. And, and so the risk, you know, the big risk that, 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 that we're starting to see is that if, if contracting momentum continues, as it's very likely to be, uh, you know, we might come to a point at some point that the amount of LNG that could be developed uh, you know, could probably be too much in terms of what Europe might require. Again, particularly if the policy framework set up by Repower EU is successful. Uh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet in terms of just how much LNG needs to be developed. And, and we're not there in terms of what the EU can really do to reduce demand to that level. Uh, but, you know, but again, th th those are two elements that are really important to watch. That LNG demand growth is not infinite. Uh, and again, uh, you know, the, the cap at that growth is really driven by what the EU decides over the next couple of years. It's a really interesting moment for LNG in the US because I was actually interviewing one of the chief executives of one of these big LNG producers right at the moment when the EU announced that it was going to phase out Russian natural gas imports by two thirds by the end of 2022. And he was... As you can understand, he was uh, delighted with the news and they see it as this huge opportunity. And yet, domestically, there's a really interesting debate now going on about whether exports themselves, oil exports, um, fuel exports, LNG exports, are in turn importing inflation into the US economy. And so there's now kind of political obstacles that are arising, which may, I don't know if they'll ever amount to much, uh, but they may pose another problem for this idea that the US can can keep ramping up exports. I just throw that out there as like a one of those political out of left field problems that could yet emerge. There is a mounting opposition. And then the other problem in the US still is that for all the will in the world, building the pipelines to get more natural gas out of the main basins, especially the Marcellus in Pennsylvania and northeast of the US, to the terminals that would export this stuff is very, very difficult. And the political will is kind of going in the opposite direction domestically 
from the kind of geopolitical need to get this stuff out into the global market and break Europe's dependence on, on Russian gas. It's a really interesting moment. It's an interesting moment. I think to some extent it links back to what you and Anne Louise were saying about, you know, investment in, in the US, in Africa US, right? You know, we all know there's a lot of reserves that are at a low cost, particularly for gas. Uh, and um, and you know, but in reality at the moment, you know, lack of drilling, you know, means that and we have prices are trading at a very high level. I mean, they've come down recently because of uh, you know the, the the issues at Freeport and uh, and, and improved weather dynamics, but uh, you know they're still at record level. And I think uh, you know a lot of those US saving the world uh, and Europe in particular are predicated upon supply being developed and and pipe being built that, that would bring prices down to, to 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 what we've seen over the last you know ten years. So in the range of you know three to four dollars, uh, you know four dollars only two years ago seemed a very high price for every hub. Uh, it doesn't seem that high anymore, right? And uh, and again, you know, the, right. the ability to leverage on cheap US LNG developments, uh, you know, comes through leveraging on cheap and rehab prices. Will they come down? Yes, they will come down compared to where they are now. But will they go back to the four dollars that we've, you know, the three dollars that we've used to to know? I mean, that's that's, uh, you know, we think so, but it's increasingly a question mark for the industry. Massimo, and do you see ever a time when Europe? turns back to Russian gas, whether Nord Stream 2 ever happens, Nord Stream 1 refills and there is a, a growing reliance again on Russian energy? Well, I suppose you ask a couple of questions, but certainly we, we think that there is not going to be any significant reapproachment in terms of importing, importing Russian gas, right? Um, so clearly in, in the short term, I think Europe is, is, is going to work to try and get Nord Stream one gas back, right? Because again, it's certainly not prepared yet to, to, to go through the winter without without that gas. And it's going to be extremely critical if, if, if that doesn't happen. You know, there are some existing long-term contracts, uh, you know, between Europe and, uh, and, and Russia that, that at the moment are not under, san- under sanctions. And, uh, and again, the EU hasn't been announcing sanctions on those, right? D- despite there could at some point be uh, a political rapprochement in the case, for example, of a change in tone of Russia and end, uh, you know, an end of a war, a gradual kind of move away from, from sanctions, which probably happen in the space of, of, of a five to 10 years period. Even if you actually believe in that scenario, you know, it's really hard to think that Europe will be- go back to any meaningful dependency on Russian gas, right? Uh, you know, so if Europe was only dependent of Russian gas to about 10%, we wouldn't be in this crisis. You know, the, the reason why we are in this crisis is because the dependency of the EU to Russia was in excess of 40%, right? So, so, so I, think, I think there is no coming back to the level of dependency. You know, will we in 10, 15 years, uh, you know, see Russian gas coming to Europe if, if uh, uh, you know, if there is a political rapprochement? That's possible, but I would, I, would, I would doubt that any meaningful dependency above 10%, it's a real possibility. So, I want to shift gears a little bit again here. We, we keep shifting gears. There's so much to unpack. Um, we've talked a lot about gas and oil. What about coal and metals? What do we think the market implications of the ban of Russian coal imports are in the EU? And in addition to coal, what could happen with a ban on Russian metals? So what well, coal is, is, is obviously you know, already facing a ban, right? That, that, that should start you know, by the end of the year. Uh, and you know, we're seeing how high prices are at the moment. I think uh, you know that they are trading in 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 you know in Europe at about three hundred and fifty dollars per ton. That's 
that's a very high price, probably you know, a record price. But to some extent, coal, similarly to oil, is, is a seaborne-traded market, and, and, and the ability for, uh, you know, for coal to find different homes, uh, it's easier than, than what it is, you know, for example, to, replace, you know, to replace, replace gas in Europe. So to some extent, similarly to, to oil, uh, you know, I suppose a reshuffle in terms of trade will help the market rebalance. And, and then the second big point is that you know, China and India, which are the biggest coal consumers, are also the biggest you know, coal producers. Uh, and so you know, we're already seeing now that you know, those countries are, are looking to ramp up production and move away from, uh, you know, from imported coal. And, and, and we believe that this can help the market rebalance in a, in a relatively, well, in, in an easier way, I would say, than, you know, than, certainly, than, than certainly gas. So, so we expect that prices you know, over the next two or three years as, as, as India and coal you know, ramp up existing production could eventually you know, come down and the market could go to some sort of um, better equilibrium relatively soon. And Louise, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I'm listening to what we're discussing and what I keep hearing indirectly or directly has bearing on the energy transition. So, for example, one of the reasons why Europe, you know, the reluctance on Europe to accept LNG is because of their drive towards the energy transition. And as Derek pointed out, that forms a constraint on investment from the U.S., it's also one of the reasons why U.S. Invest, U.S. investors uh, in the lower 48 on the oil side are not particularly incentivized to ramp up. If you look at the message that they receive, you know, the investors are receiving indirectly, emphasize, de-emphasize oil and gas, build up uh, renewables positions. So there's this sort of disincentive to invest in these industries. And now we just heard that potentially on the metals side, uh, more of these metals, either you have a supply chain constraint, which leads to higher prices for the metals that are needed for the energy transition, or they go into China, which then leads to China having even more control over the whole chain of battery materials that we need for the energy transition. Uh, because that is a weakness in when you look at it geopolitically, in terms of where does all the controlling, we are almost creating the same sort of reliance in terms of where we get metals and raw, not just raw materials, but midstream metals for batteries on China that we had for Russia on oil and gas. So there's implications that I'm hearing on the energy transition. There's an incentive for the energy transition, but let's face it, higher costs and roadblocks are being thrown up uh, because we need oil and gas until we get to it. We don't want that to be too high cost. We need more investment. But on the other hand, we're also looking at higher prices on the energy transition metals and even renewables and wind because of accelerated demand. So all of that creates issues. Um, and particularly that metals one, Massimo, I found that very concerning. Derek, let's kick it over to you. What do you think? Uh, I think, I mean, Anne-Louise has really hit the nail on the head there. I think what's what Ukraine, what this whole problem what the, what the invasion has created is 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 a bit of a mess for the energy transition. There's so many threads that need to be picked up, but it's so difficult for for policymakers. But it's so difficult to do that in the midst of an energy crisis. And I, you know, I've I've been living in the U.S. Um, and before I left for the U.S., uh, it was the run in the U.K. It was a run up to COP26, and the discourse was all about climate and COP26. Since coming back to the U.K. on this visit, 
um, everything, the news agenda is entirely captured by the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis and inflation and so on. And things, and that is, that is a huge shift in the attitudes of the general public, I think, towards the energy transition. And if the energy transition is going to be costly, it's going to be very, very difficult for policymakers to advance it. And the idea that Europe, which has been so holier than now, let's be frank, about its climate messaging in global discussions, especially when they talk to developing countries, the idea that Europe is now in its own crisis and therefore it's acceptable to import more coal, to reactivate its its dream of, of gasification, et cetera, et cetera, rely on fossil fuels to fix this problem for it, even in the short term. The idea that Europe can then go and talk to developing countries about how they should not you know, build coal-fired power stations, when they, many of those countries believe that is the fastest way for them to get the electricity they need. I mean, that, that idea has been, has been blown out of the water, um, unfortunately, by this. And the idea that uh, we can um, have a carbon tax, it raises gasoline prices for Americans and it encourages everybody to go drive EVs more quickly than otherwise, has been blown out of the water by the Biden administration, the climate, self-declared climate presidency, panicking as soon as gasoline prices went above $4 a gallon and pivoting back to supply side solutions, more, you know, or, or tax cuts or more production from the frackers that it didn't, you know, the administration came into office saying it wanted to to contain and so on. These, the compromises that Western politicians are now going through on a daily basis, the hypocrisies, let's be frank, are really, really dangerous for the political momentum behind the climate fight. It's almost like the climate agenda has been relegated. It's a problem to deal with much later. Let's get let's burn some more fossil fuels to fix the high cost of living crisis right now. And that I think is 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 a really big problem. I don't have an answer for it, um, but I think it's a problem that is going to hang over the the pace of the energy transition for the next few years. I think I, I think timing here is key. What, what this crisis means is that you're going to have a period of extremely high commodity prices, whether that's gas, whether that's coal, whether that's oil, I mean, there could be some places that could be insulated by these very high, you know, global traded prices, but but after all, very few are right. Uh, and so the reality is that if we were getting into a situation where, you know, pre-COP, the economics of renewables were on pair, right, on the levelized cost to build to, to build power with you know with gas and coal. I mean, obviously, you know, that's not you know, considering cost of batteries, but let's park that for now. You know, instead, over the next few years, you're likely going to see a situation where, you know, gas prices are going to be extremely high. You know, coal will be much higher than, than originally thought. And again, oil prices are also going to be high. Then, you know, eventually the economics of renewables, even considering issues associated with supply chain and cost inflation, are going to look much more attractive than building otherwise. Uh, and to some extent, uh, you know, can, can hit the bill in terms of security of supply. That's certainly the European rhetoric, but but I think it could also be the rhetoric of of, of China increasingly more, uh, and uh, you know, and, and India. So, so, so I think it's inevitable to, to what to what you say, you know, to, to your point that you know we're going to see a period where coal is going to be used more. You know, we in our horizon piece we say that coal could well be, uh, you know, the transition fuel instead of gas in some in some markets. And again, you know, developing and delivering on renewables is going to be more expensive. Perhaps it will take more time. But inevitably, longer term, you know, the economics of, of renewables look very attractive versus versus this very high and volatile carbon prices and actually producing electricity with with that. And again, uh, you know, it reduces the risk of price volatility 
so I think actually that longer term, this is going to have an effect in terms of accelerating investment on renewable. Obviously, you know, supply chains issues at the moment are, are slowing down the ability to scale up substantially. But, you know, but eventually when some of these issues will be, will be resolved, I think we're going to see a lot of investment in renewables, more than what we originally thought. So with that, we're actually completely out of time. We're actually ran over, but I do want to give one more question out there. It's been a fantastic discussion. In one sentence, maybe two, what's one thing energy markets can do to mitigate the fallout of the invasion? I don't think there is anything market. I mean, I could give a pessimistic answer. I don't think there is anything markets can do to mitigate this. I think markets are going to be volatile because of this. Uh, If you can hedge brilliantly, then go for it. But it seems to me that we're in an era of extreme volatility caused by the the appearance, again, of geopolitics as the decisive factor in energy markets. Hedging is a good idea on something markets can do, as Derek said. But also, uh, it's become very clear. Uh, I remember decades ago, the whole mantra was storage is for losers. You don't want minimize your costs. Just don't bother storing anything. Be nimble. Be quick. Storage costs money. I think what market players can do is put more of a premium on storage of energy, storage of oil, storage of gas, and value that more than it has. That is a market action. Now, can I make it happen? No, of course not. But that's what needs to happen, is more of an emphasis on storage and and being seeing value in holding storage. I think that's a great point, but I think I think it goes back to what what policymakers can do, right? I think the, the issue about storage is is that price signals are, all, are, are not always the right signals to uh, you know to to get gas into storage when when needed. So I'm not sure what markets can do, but I, but but I know that policymakers need to build resilience into the system, need to define uh, elements that help you know value things like storage, as as Anne Louise says. Uh, and and help build infrastructure that, that is required to, you know, to ensure that the energy can be there when needed. Thank you all for this incredible conversation today. Massimo, where can listeners learn more about the work that you've been doing? Well, I suppose through the portal, we met portal for all the clients, but I think it's important to remember that there's a lot of content that we publish through our website, woodmet.com, including, you know, the horizon that we've just published. So I encourage everybody going to that website and, um, and hear what we want to say. Awesome. It is absolutely worth checking out. And Louise, where can listeners find out more about the work that you and the oils team are doing with Woodmac? I'd say the same as Massimo in, in terms of the portal for clients, the oil price outlook page for oil clients, where you can see everything in one place. And then just the public woodmac.com has a lot of content on it. And then we have a very active Twitter account too, where we post a fair amount of content as well as LinkedIn. All right, Derek, last but certainly not least, where can we follow along with what you're writing and what the Financial Times is publishing to keep up with with what you're learning about? Well, energy is dominating the coverage at the Financial Times at the moment, I'm glad to say. So FT.com is is the place to go. And usually there's a splash. One of the big stories is usually about energy at the moment, um, because that is the the main story. I'm sure we all agree. Um, So go there. You can find our stories there. Find my stories there. Energy Source Newsletter is the other place. Uh, and that's a bit more inside baseball. Um, it's a newsletter designed for energy professionals and people are really interested in the topic. So um, I urge you all to to go there as well. But those are the two places. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Thank you, Massimo. Thank you, Anne-Louise. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, listeners. 
In order to combat the negative impacts of the war in Ukraine on global commodity markets, governments, investors, and companies will need to respond with haste. Governments will need to step up domestic hydrocarbon and critical mineral resource production. Investors will need to diversify investment in clean energy. These investments will be more expensive, but higher commodity and power prices will ensure they remain competitive. Companies, last of all, will need to pounce on opportunities to create low-cost, low-carbon supplies of oil and gas from NOCs, but also look at creating low-carbon energy projects. A rewriting of energy trade flows is underway, with Russia looking east at alternative markets. The risk of global supply loss is high, and the divide between the so-called West and non-aligned countries could deepen. In order to navigate this new geopolitical paradigm, fresh thinking is required. Thank you for joining us on the June edition of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here, though, because now we're going to leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Thanks, Liz, Massimo, and Louise and Derek. The war in Ukraine changes everything. Geopolitics, world trading patterns between nations, and the energy and natural resources sectors. It's breathed new life into investment into fossil fuels outside Russia, gas and LNG in particular. That's not great for global warming or the emissions reductions goals post COP26, but the short-term aim of policy is to keep the lights on. We're also seeing some countries accelerating the energy transition. Renewables and other low carbon technologies will strengthen energy security medium term. But a faster transition will add to the anticipated strain on global supply chains for everything in the low carbon value chain from solar panels to the critical transition metals. Governments have to step in to resolve some of these challenges, while the dual path of investment in fossil fuels and low carbon technologies opens up great opportunities for investors and companies. Thanks for listening to the June edition of Horizons. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Next month, we turn our attention to energy super basins, where industrial scale renewables and carbon capture and storage in the future will coexist with the best upstream oil and gas production. See you next time.